Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, a very special episode of Insurrection gives us what might have been the most shocking congressional hearing in American history. That's right. Uh, Hot Takes Amy Westervelt joins to talk about the Supreme Court's fuck you to the planet. And Chief Take Officer Elijah Cohn has prepared a special take appreciator of Republican reactions to Tuesday's hearing. Uh, But first, Crooked Media has... A brand new podcast out called Imani State of Mind. Uh, This is a show where psychiatrist and TV personality Dr. Imani Walker and co-host comedian Meg Scoop Thomas normalize the conversation about mental health through insightful and witty discussions about what's happening in news, pop culture, and our daily lives. Get real on your relationship with yourself, your parents, your friends, and so much more. Listen and follow Imani State of Mind wherever you get your podcasts. Exciting. Uh, Also, check out this week's Offline, where we answer the question, has Google created a soul? Uh, (laughs) Natasha Tiku of the Washington Post joins to discuss her blockbuster story of a Google engineer who claims the company's artificial intelligence chatbot, Lambda, is sentient. This is a great conversation, Dan. You'll want to, uh, if you haven't listened already, you'll want to hear this one. It's uh, it's pretty, I, I had like not followed the whole AI debate for a while. Because you I were offline? Because I was offline, right. And then I read finally read this story and then read the chats and I was, I, I went down a rabbit hole. Uh, and then I did this interview. Uh, also check out this coming Sunday's episode where I talked to college student Emma Lemke about the log off movement that she started to help young people struggling with the mental health effects of social media. Uh, Listen to new episodes of Offline every Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, let's get to the news. On Tuesday, the January 6th committee shocked the world with a surprise hearing that revealed Donald Trump wanted to personally join the violent mob that stormed the Capitol after being told that they were armed and dangerous. The star witness was Cassidy Hutchinson, the most Republican name possible. <laughs> I just <laughs> Cassidy Hutchinson. She was a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And Cassidy, as promised by uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin not long ago, blew the roof off the house with the most damning and potentially incriminating testimony ever delivered about the current Republican frontrunner for the presidency. All right, so we are going to go through... Uh, the five most batshit crazy moments from the hearings in a bit. But before we do, Dan, maybe we should explain to people why Hutchinson's White House job would have allowed this 25-year-old special assistant to the president to see and hear so much. So a couple of things here. One, the real centers of power in the West Wing are the assistants. They know everything. They are involved in everything. At least in our White House, each and every one of them had the highest security clearance available. They basically help run the place. And if you want to know what's happening, you have to talk to the assistants. It's also, I think, just so people understand it, special assistant to the president is the third highest rank that Mm. the president can give someone. It does like there are people who are assistants in the sense that they assist bosses, which could be clerical work, scheduling, et cetera. But special assistant to the president is a is an, an official designation that it, it goes assistant to the president. Or there are like 25 or so of those deputy assistant, to the president and special assistant. And so that is, that is a, a rank of significance. And I think more important than any other assistants are the people who work for the chief of staff, because every single decision that is made political, legislative, scheduling, administrative, 
national security involves the chief of staff's office. So it is not shocking to anyone I think who's ever worked in the West Wing that this individual will be so plugged in. And I think it's particularly true because in this testimony, Mark Meadows seems like a largely absent doofus. So if you needed to get something done in that office, people were clearly going to Cassie Hutchinson. So she seemed to know even more than the average assistant to the chief of staff would know. So it's it's not surprising, I think, to anyone who's worked in that building. And I think that I, I, I read this a couple of places. She was more basically the uh, the chief of staff to the chief of staff. The like she wasn't the just the co- Yeah, the coast to the coast. Because I think the chief of staff does have some assistants that work for them, but they also have like a, a chief of staff that sort of runs everything. So and 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 according to people who worked in the Trump White House, other Republicans, she was in every single meeting that Mark Meadows was in and many meetings that he wasn't in. <laughs> so she was at the Oval. I mean, her office was 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 steps from the Oval. I think that's why they decided to show a a map of the West Wing at the beginning <laughs> of the hearing, just so that you could see like where Cassidy sat was like next to right down the down the hall from the oval from the chief of staff from the deputy chief of staff all all the most uh, all the most senior people in the white house were right there um okay moment number 1 hutchinson testifies about meadows reaction when she tells him that rudy giuliani talked about a plan to go to the capitol on january 6th i remember leaning against the doorway and saying i had an interesting conversation with rudy mark it sounds like we're going to go to the capitol He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Real, real bad. In other words, not great. Not great, Dan. (laughs) First of all, I like that at least 15 different times in her testimony, she talked about how Mark Meadows refused to look up from his phone. So, like, first of all, Great offline guest. I should I should get get him offline. <laughs> Thinking about like what was he just? Do you think he was on his phone the whole time because Ginny Thomas wouldn't stop texting him about the coup? Yeah, I mean maybe he's addicted to Twitter. Maybe he's <laughs> setting his lineup for his fantasy basketball team. I don't know, but he also, as we pick, know, pick, one picking rep- the right Instagram rep- filter. <laughs> That's right. We also maybe he's big into TikTok, but we also <laughs> know that he seemed to have spent ninety percent of his time texting the worst people in the world. Rudy yeah, Giuliani, very busy. the staff of Fox, Ginny Thomas, et cetera. And so, yeah, maybe that's what he was doing. So we now know that both Meadows and Trump had advanced knowledge from multiple sources that January 6th might turn violent in advance of January 6th. This includes the Capitol Police, the Secret Service, various national security officials. Why is that significant? Because it indicates that wit, that they knew that something bad could happen. Not only did they do nothing to prevent it, they actively poured gas on the fire to make it worse. Yeah. And that that matters legally, which we'll talk about. It certainly matters politically. It is just the absolutely most damning statement on the kind of people they are. Yeah. I mean, in, uh, around 9-11, everyone always talks about the, the warning that Bush got from the uh, intelligence agencies like bin Laden determined to strike within the within the U.S. This was like days and days of like, hey, there's going to be violence. There's going to be organized violence. There's going to be people who are armed coming to Washington. You have to watch out. And then Trump and Meadows just decided they didn't care. They didn't care. In fact, as we'll find out, we're encouraging it. Uh, okay, so moment number two. Hutchinson testifies that various White House staff, but especially White House lawyers, were urging speechwriters not to include language in Trump's Stop the Steel rally speech that he had demanded, such as, quote, we're going to march to the Capitol and quote, I'll be there with you. Here's what Hutchinson said that White House counsel Pat Cipollone told her earlier. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Uh, do you remember when I would get testy because the White House Counsel's Office would try to make my speeches uh, less crimey? <laughs> I really feel like I should clear out and just let you address this because you are <laughs> one of the most even-tempered people I know, except when speech edits come in. So I'll let you address this. 
You know, here's the thing with the speech edits. You know, when they come from people like, you know, that you know in the White House office, you know, Axarod, you, uh, any number of people we worked with, that's that's one thing. Also, when they come in a timely manner in the early drafts, right? That's what we appreciate in the speech writing process, not last-minute fucking edits right before the speech. But when you get all the branches of government getting involved and giving you edits and they all come in late, it's really annoying. But I will say that if (laughs) as annoyed as I used to get about last-minute speech edits right before a speech after Barack Obama had already signed off on what he wanted to say – if someone from the when the White House Counsel's Office reached out, which they I cannot even remember many times when they did, <laughs> but whenever I got an email from Greg Craig or Kathy Rumler or anyone who worked in the White House Counsel's Office, my ears would perk up and I would say, "Okay, well, yet if the lawyers don't like this, we will make something work. <laughs> we will make something work." I mean, it is important to recognize that those were always like very narrow language changes involving like the Hatch Act. Right. I was like just going to say they were all hatch act stuff. So it would basically yes. be like if we were writing a speech for – and this this is – it goes back to why some people probably get annoyed that Joe Biden doesn't go further on things. If you are president, there is this uh, law called the Hatch Act where you have to be careful what you advocate for politically and in a partisan way in your capacity as president of the United States. So if you're at a campaign rally, that's fine. If you're giving an official speech, you can say like, I wish Congress would send me legislation, but you can't necessarily say, I wish you would all vote out uh, the Republican members of Congress because that could possibly be a Hatch Act violation. So those were usually the lines that we had to make sure not to cross and what the White House counsels were. Those are minor things like avoiding basically speeding tickets, right? What we're talking about here is, in the words of Pat Cipollone, every crime imaginable, right? Like an active, specific announcement of a crime in commission at the moment is what they were referring to. And they did it anyway, right? They did it anyway. They did it anyway. Or at least at least in, in the case of Donald Trump, he certainly tried to, which we'll get to in a second. Um, so Cipollone was just subpoenaed on Wednesday. What do you think the committee is looking for from him? <laughs> Literally everything. He obviously can testify with a first-person account to verify the things that Cassidy said in this hearing, but also he clearly, and this is true, we've seen this in other reporting, a lot of reporting Maggie Haberman has done in some of these books, that Cipollone was often the person trying to stop Trump and his allies from committing a lot of crimes, stopping and failing in many cases, but he was constantly raising the red flag. So he, like, this is... He is the John Dean, to use the Watergate parallel here, who could come and speak to it. And now some people will say, well, he's the president's lawyer. What about attorney-client privilege? But he's not the president's lawyer, right? He is the government's lawyer. And there have been, it is not a fully established principle, but it's mostly White Houses operate under the idea that the White House counsel and the president of the United States do not share attorney-client privilege when they communicate. And that yeah. you would could be compelled to testify about that stuff. So he is an absolutely essential witness. It is ridiculous that he, it is an act actually of just pure cowardice that he is not cooperating. He is not going to step because he clearly knows what the president did was wrong, was a deeply dangerous person. That deeply dangerous person is planning on running for president again, and he is refusing to speak out because it may be He's afraid that he'll upset his MAGA friends or to get fewer clients or whatever it is, but it's very, very frustrating. Yeah, there are ways to abide by the the uh, spirit of the privilege law while still constructing testimony that would be helpful and uh, necessary to the committee here. The New York Times reported that uh, Cipollone and people close to him was su- were surprised that he received the subpoena because apparently he'd been having informal conversations with the committee. But now they want him to testify, you know, partly because of Hutchinson's testimony, partly because in all of these hearings, every moment from the uh, planning of the coup, the overturning of the election, wanting Pence to overturn the election, uh, DOJ and Jeff Clark trying, you know, Trump pressuring them to say that the election was corrupt. Pat Cipollone was in every single one of those meetings. And according to testimony from other witnesses, Cassidy Hutchinson and others, in every single instance, Pat Cipollone was like, hey, this is against the law within earshot of the president of the United States, who then decided to do it anyway, 
which would then prove that the president did this knowing full well that what he was doing was against the law, which is what we're trying to prove here if we're in a, in a legal situation. One thing that is mildly frustrating here is in the world in which we imagined we existed, when someone is, has a subpoena delivered to them, that means that they then will testify. And now yeah. we know after multiple impeachments, multiple oversight investigations, these hearings, that subpoena is just basically like Latin for pretty please. Like it's not clear so that more this will a, end more up of a with suggestion. A <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, please show up to Congress if you have time. All right. Moment number three. Here's uh, here's where shit gets really nuts. Hutchinson testifies that she heard Trump say the following when he was told that the rioters who showed up for the Stop the Steal rally at the Ellipse were armed and dangerous and were being stopped at the metal detectors at the event known as MAGs. He was told again in that conversation, or was he told again in that conversation, that people couldn't come through the MAGs because they had weapons? Correct. And um, that people, and he, his response was to say they can march to the Capitol from, in, from the ellipse. Something to the effect of, take the effing MAGs away, they're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. Take the fucking mags away. They're not here to hurt me. And then they can march to the Capitol. Dan, I am no lawyer. But um, do you think you're allowed to send a mob of armed insurrectionists to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power so long as... Uh, it was to make sure you had a, a, a decent-sized crowd shot on television. Well, John, I'm not a lawyer either. But ultimately, it's not up to you or me, people listening. There's just one ponderous former judge sitting in the Department of Justice who will determine whether that is a crime. I mean, that's just... That that truly is. I know we're going to focus on the, the 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 steering wheel anecdote here, but I think that to me, I mean, there, look, there's plenty of evidence that we've heard already that it, that Trump was deeply involved in the uh, overturning the election part of the coup, uh, the fake electors getting Pence to do it, uh, the the pressure on DOJ, etc. On the uh, inciting violence and and inciting the insurrection part of the coup, I think. This is maybe the strongest evidence yet um, that Trump not only knew there was an armed and dangerous crowd, but thought it was fine, welcomed them to the event that he spoke at, and then hoped and urged them, in fact, to then march to the Capitol. The phrase, they are not here to hurt me, is the just the absolute yeah. crystallization of Trumpism. Right. Is we don't yep. give two shits about what happens to anyone else. It is fine because they will not hurt me. Not even not even my my staff or my voters or my people or my movement. Me. It's just me. Yes. It's all he has ever been about. He's not fucking the leader of a movement. He's a fucking selfish, egotistical asshole who only cares about himself. That is it. Now, look, if we to be fair to Merrick Garland. Obviously, we have not seen all the evidence. We have not seen these witnesses under cross-examination. They have to make a decision, not just do they have sufficient evidence to charge Trump, but do they have sufficient evidence to convict Trump? And that's always right. a hard thing to do. But I have to say, if somehow the former president of the United States can dispatch a mob he knows to be violent in, and armed to march on the Capitol for the purpose of blocking the certification of a legitimate election. And then when things get violent, he pours gas on the fire by tweeting about it. If that is something that is not treated as a crime, that there is no legal accountability for, that is just opening the door to so much stuff in this country. It is just giving a permission slip to the right for a violent takeover of the elections again in 2025. And that is has to weigh on the decision makers at the Department of Justice. Like even like put the optics aside, put you know whatever shit they're going to get from the optics police about you know Joe Biden's attorney general is prosecuting Joe Biden's, you know, future opponent. Fuck that. Like this is a much much more important thing and principle and it's essential that something happens here. Now they will, I'm sure, 
Trump and the and the and I've seen this already and the, the MAGA assholes will say that their defense will be well in the speech. He also used the word peaceful somewhere in the speech. Right. That's what they'll say uh, <laughs> in the rally speech. But like now, you know, that was one thing. It was never believable. It was one thing right after it happened. Now that we know all this, that he was there, that he wanted them to come through the ma- they wanted to take the mags away, that he didn't think they were going to hurt him, that he still wanted an armed and dangerous crowd to go to the Capitol, that he wanted to join them. Now that we know that, that fucking steamrolls the whole, oh, I included the word peaceful once in the speech. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, peaceful is a poorly constructed alibi. It's not evidence of innocence. Yeah. All right. Moment number four, which will surely live in infamy. Uh, Hutchinson testified that White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato told her the following story about what happened when Trump's driver, Secret Service agent Robert Engel, told the president that he couldn't go to the Capitol. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. So... Anonymous Secret Service sources have been telling reporters that this incident did not happen uh, exactly as Hutchinson testified and that Ornato and Engel are prepared to testify to that effect. What do you think is going on here? Well, three points. The first is Hutchinson didn't testify that she saw this. She testified that someone told her this. Second, Tony Ornato, who was a Secret Service agent who left the Secret Service to accept a political job working for Donald Trump, who has now since returned to the Secret Service, according to Alyssa Farah, Trump's communications director turned, I don't know, view host aspirant, I don't know, but has been, she's been (laughs) out there a lot sort of explaining Cassie Hutchinson's role, but she tells a story about how, she said on CNN, I believe to Jake Tapper, that Tony, she knows that Tony Ornato has previously lied uh, in order to defend Trump over the uh, to push back against uh, Alyssa Farah's uh, recounting of how the Lafayette Square photo op during the the 2020 protests happened. And so that is a reason to question uh, whether he is doing that once again. Third, and I think most importantly. Who cares? This is by far the least important thing that she revealed in her testimony. It does not matter. It is not, it would not be part of the criminal case, whether Trump lunged for for the steering wheel, whether he grabbed someone's clavicle, he stumbled towards someone's clavicle, whether he simply yelled is irrelevant. It is more an example of just how potentially unhinged and dangerous he is and why he should not be one of the many reasons why he should not be president. But the fact that cable news, Twitter, everyone is obsessing about this is we are missing the forest for the trees here. And I think that is a huge it's just the obsession with this is just an indictment of so much of political media, political Twitter, what we focus on, because it's. It's like exciting and we can imagine the scene where it happens. It doesn't matter. We have to focus on the criminal intent of what happened and what that means for a legal case and what it means politically. This thing is dumb. I haven't been, I haven't, I haven't sort of, I guess, a New Year's resolution. I haven't yelled about like really dumb media coverage in a few pods, I guess. But um, like, you know, NBC News of all places, had some line that was like, this This chipped away at the credibility of her testimony. Fuck you. No, it did not. Like she, like you said, she is recounting a story that to- Tony Ornato told her. If he exaggerated the story or if he lied about the story, that's not fucking Cassidy Hutchinson's problem. That's Tony Ornato's problem. Also, like you said, it matters so little. Here's what we know for sure. What the Secret Service has confirmed, what Trump has said in an interview, is that he wanted to go to the Capitol. We know that he wanted to go to the Capitol. That is not in dispute. We also know that he was angry because he wasn't allowed to go to the Capitol. That is not in dispute by the Secret Service, by Trump. So whether he was just flailing around in the... 
in the limo, whether he lunged, whether he made it all the way to the steering wheel, which, look, is he the most agile guy? I don't think so. (laughs) Is he known to move quickly? Ah, not so much, but like surely he was screaming and yelling. I'm sure, I'm sure that was the case. So whether he whether he reached the clavicle or not, whether he reached the steering wheel or not, does not matter a fucking whit. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. I mean, later many people were, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson testified, and I'm sure others can can account for this too. That uh, he got mad when he read the AP story about Bill Barr saying there was no fraud in the election, and he threw his fucking burger at the wall in the White House, and there was ketchup all over the wall. Uh, I'm sure that happened. And if <laughs> like, it didn't, who cares? Again, but like, how many stories do we have to hear about Trump fucking losing his shit and throwing this around before we realize they're probably true stories <laughs> or some version of it? You know. It's ridiculous. It's really, really ridiculous. And like you said, I think it's another important point too. Like Tony Ornato does not seem like that guy is fucking on the level. <laughs> right? Like, like you're in the secret service, you leave for a political job. They all, and then, and, and Carol Lenning of the Washington Post, who wrote a book both on the secret service and helped Phil Rucker by, write a book on Trump has noted that Ornato and Engel were both known as Trump. Yes, men. They were very close to Trump. They were like his pals, um, you know, Mike Pence's uh, aide didn't want to send Mike Pence in the motorcade uh, leaving the Capitol during the vote count because he was worried that Tony Ornato and his goons would like take Mike Pence away somewhere and actually like put put him at risk. So like that's how little people trust Tony Ornato within the Trump. World. I mean, that is a wild, wild anecdote. I mean. And look, and the Secret Service res- initially responded to that anecdote. Oh, that's 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 not a story we had heard before. So, like, I don't know that we, I don't know right now how much we can trust trust within the Secret Service. I mean, I think saying, we. But. I mean, you and I should probably at least just take one second to note that we obviously worked with, you know, and we're around Secret Service agents all the time. And the overwhelming, like, these are the exception, not the rule. The overwhelming majority of them are just basically patriots who work for either president uh, without. Yep. Uh, you know, 100%. there was never a term we were worried about them taking us somewhere if we got in the wrong car, right? They a hundred percent. But you know, Trump corrupts uh, everyone around him, and yeah. so uh, do I believe that there's a few Secret Service agents that of Trump corrupted? Uh, of course. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. All right, one last moment from the testimony, uh, which again shows the unbreakable bond between Donald Trump and his vice president. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, "Mark, we need to do something more." They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat, he thinks Mike deserves it, he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Seems like a cool boss, huh? Uh, I noticed that uh, Tony Ornato and uh, and all his uh, sources didn't push back on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm really struggling with the fact that we've been talking about the hang Mike Pence thing for a year and a half now, and every time it's funny, I, I, I know it should not. I know it should not be funny. It should not be funny, but it is. But for some reason, I don't know what it is about Mike Pence that it is the only. He is the only person whose murder is socially acceptable to laugh at. <laughs> it's just everyone laughs. Democrats, Republicans, some of the media people can't keep a straight face when they think about it. I mean, it's just. I don't know what to say, but it's you know. It's, and it look, it's a horrifying thing that the president of the United States said. It's horrifying. No, it's, it's, it's horrifying that there was a fucking violent mob that tried to that was calling for the hanging of the vice president of the United States. That's a horrifying. But you know, Trump and Trump and Mike Pence, no love lost. No just, love lost there. In the world in which Trump is the 2024 Republican nominee, just imagine the thought process for potential vice presidents. Yeah, like yeah, I'd like I'm to fly on Air Force Two, and I'm willing to risk murder for it. Yeah, like on one hand, I might get to be vice president. On the other hand, if things go south, he might toss me to a violent mob. <laughs> so you know, so they got some pros and cons. All right, a few more questions before we move on. How much do you think Hutchinson's testimony affects the legal, the potential legal case against Trump? Once again, you and I we, are not. We got we got potential seditious conspiracy, incitement to violence, obstruction of a congressional proceeding, and conspiring to defraud the U.S. That's what we got. That's the constellation of potential charges. I mean, you and I, as you pointed out, not lawyers. All of the lawyers on Twitter seem to think that it is quite damning for Trump. And if this evidence were to hold up under cross-examination and, and other evidence and is confirmed by other testimony, 
the pressure on Merrick Garland to do something is incredibly high. And like there, all of the defenses that Trump's aides and allies have previously offered are eviscerated by Hutchinson's testimony. Here's a quote. The department is clearly looking into this, and this hearing definitely gave investigators a lot to chew on. From former Attorney General Bill Barr, said that to the New York Times. That's when you know you're uh, you're in the shit right there. You got Billy Barr out there telling you, <laughs> telling the New York Times that there was a lot to chew on. I mean, yeah. Look, I, like I said, I think that on the you know there's two parts of the two parts of the coup. There's the overturn in the election part, and there's the uh, sicking the violent mob on the on Congress part. And I think so far, a lot of these hearings have been uh, lending a lot of evidence on the first and not the and not the second. And I think the surprise that Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony certainly um, gives investigators to a lot to chew on, in the words of Bill Barr, on um, whether Trump's words and actions uh, incited violence, uh, which, of course, would be a crime. So whether they'll be able, like you said, there's a difference between indictments and convictions. And if you're going after uh, a potential a former and potential future president you gotta you, you gotta feel pretty strongly that you can get a conviction but um but yeah i mean i do want to talk about the political case against trump <laughs> if there is any justice in this world because like we said last time there's not just uh you know lawyers and juries that we have to think about but there's a larger jury which is uh the american electorate uh which uh, is going to have a chance to uh, render their verdict on Donald Trump potentially in 2024, starting with Republican voters. Um, do you think there's enough new and explosive information here to uh, strengthen the political case against Trump? <laughs> like among Certainly not among us. I think we are decided. I think we, <laughs> you and I have rendered our verdict and probably every single person listening to this podcast has done the same. But for those who are still thinking about voting for Donald Trump again if he runs. What do you think? You mean folks like Rusty Bowers of Arizona? Well, folks like, yeah. What do you, I, exactly. Someone go interview Rusty Bowers. What did Rusty Bowers think about uh, think about Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony? He's still thinking about voting for Donald Trump? Like, I mean, on paper, this should be so damning that no one would ever publicly support Trump ever again. That even being associated with him would be, make you persona non grata in, in polite society. That's obviously not going to happen. The overwhelming majority of Trump's base is going to stick with him. But I don't think that's how we should judge the success of this. We should judge the success of whether it, it does two things. One, helps people understand who Trump is, what he did, and just how dangerous he was and is. And in the polling thus far, there's evidence that that is working. Right? The number in, the, in some yeah. of the polling we've seen, the number of people who believe Trump should be charged with a crime has gone up, not down, since this hearing started. Support for these hearings and this investigation has gone up, not down, since they started. And in the number of people who support Trump, it's not a huge number, but it includes two in 10 Republicans think Trump should be charged with a crime. And yeah. that's a, like, that is a big deal. There, in order to win, Trump has to hold his base. And so I do think it could change the you know the calculus about whether trump runs the appetite for him to run within the republican party were he not to be charged with a crime and like that matters but i think we like the point of these hearings and the point of what merrick garland does is about trump what he did the rest of us have to make a case that it's not about just about trump in the past it's about trump the republicans in the future because if we just simply swap one insurrectionist for another within the republican party and in, in, in the White House, then we're in huge trouble. And so that is the one thing that I think really comes out of this. Because, you know, as you say, the the jury will, you know, the, the broader jury will weigh in 2024. But also there's, a, there's another trial in 2022. And if yep. and every Republican not named Cheney, Kinziger, and Romney continues to stand with Trump and not just tolerate him to enthusiastically seek his support, to brand themselves as Trump Republicans, to beg him to campaign for them. And if there is no political price for that in this election, it will embolden him and it will embolden the Republicans in 2024. I was talking to a, a Democratic strategist who was um, made the point that, you know, obviously Terry McAuliffe failed to tie Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump famously in that Virginia gubernatorial race. But he also pointed out, he's like, that wasn't during the January 6th hearings. He's like, imagine if the election in Virginia was in a couple weeks and Glenn Youngkin was being asked every single day, 
what do you think about Donald Trump? Are you still support? You know, are you supportive of Donald Trump? Are you st-? and and I think it would. Who knows what would have happened? But it would have been much more difficult. And I do think like every single candidate up in a competitive district or state in 22 is going to have to answer for the fact that they are still embracing this guy who his former employees are now testifying wanted to join the violent mob that attacked the Capitol knowing that they were armed and dangerous. That is who you're embracing if you're a Republican candidate in 2020. I think there, this is one very important political element to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, which is it ties Trump very specifically to the violence that happened on January 6th and the fact that he wanted to join, he wanted to lead that mob. He wanted to, them to follow him, mm-hmm. I imagine quite slowly, on the walk to the Capitol. And like we know in polling that even though 70% of Republicans think the election was stolen in some way, shape, or form, we know that majorities of Republicans oppose these hearings. We do know that eight in 10 Republicans oppose what happened on January 6th. And so the fact that Trump was involved in that is very, very damning. Last question before we move on, just sort of a curiosity that we've all had since these hearings, like why, obviously this this was like, you know, bombshell, explosive testimony, but why did they hold the surprise hearing when they had just announced that they were done until after the July 4th holiday? What do you think the reason for the urgency of the hearing was? Well, I think we know a little bit about this from some of the reporting and some of Cassie Hutchinson's colleagues talking to the press, but it seems to be a couple of things has happened. She has been cooperating clearly very fully with the committee for a long period of time. She recently switched attorneys and the attorney she had mm. previously was, I think, more sort of like mobbed up in Trump world than the new one is a, a conservative Republican. I think he worked for Jeff Sessions previously, but I think has taken is representing his client very specifically and not the former president. And I think there was maybe some reaction to some of the criticism she got from the right after her videotape testimony played such a prominent role in the previous hearing and wanted to get out there and tell her story. And I think two points of urgency to move forward. One is perhaps she did not want to spend three or four weeks waiting for congressional recess to end to to actually tell that story, to sort of just sit out there unable to defend yeah. herself. And the second one from the committee, I think, was previewed at the end when when Liz Cheney brought up the fact that some of their witnesses have received pressure from Trump associates saying things like he's paying attention. He reads the transcripts before they testify. And Punchbowl uh, today reported that one of the text messages that Liz Cheney showed on the screen was to Hutchinson. Now, oh, any fun. threat that includes Donald Trump reading transcripts is probably an idle threat, but even still, that is witness tampering, plain and simple. Just fucking mobbed up assholes right till the end. Just, Just the no, no dumbest mobsters, right? It's like dumbest mobsters. Yeah, it's like it's like Sopranos cosplay, but just in the with the worst possible writing. All right, when we come back, Dan talks to Amy Westervelt of the Crooked Pod Hot Take about the next steps on climate after the Supreme Court's EPA decision. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added therapy back to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. Well, it's really going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. This morning, the Supreme Court issued its last major ruling of this session, and it was yet another shitburger. 
In a 6-3 to three ruling, the conservative majority wrote that President Biden does not have the power to enforce emission standards through the EPA. Joining us to discuss the future of climate change policy in this country is the host of Crooked's fantastic climate podcast, Hot Take, Amy Westervelt. Amy, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Thanks for having me on this great day. Of course. I'm just a, yeah, just, 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 we're just running every day. Every pod is like another guest asked to explain something terrible to people. But that's why you're here. So we've known this ruling was coming for a while. Can you just help walk through what the court did and where this case came from for our listeners who may have been preoccupied with the other horrendous decisions of this Supreme Court over the last seven days? Yes. So, first of all, I have to say that actually, um, I was relieved when I saw this decision because it could have been so much worse. Um, It's actually quite narrow. It focuses specifically on this section of the Clean Air Act that has to do with whether or not the EPA can regulate emissions beyond the fence line of power plants. So whether it it has authority um, beyond just kind of saying one power plant at a time what the emissions can be from each place. So he, you know, they definitely got into basically saying, don't you dare implement that clean power plan. But um, it it still leaves quite a bit of authority for both the EPA and other governmental agencies to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Um, That is preserved, like whether or not, you know, it happens is another question. Frankly, the Supreme Court should have never taken this case. It is a case about the Clean Power Plan, which was never implemented. Um, The entire major questions doctrine that got the court to take this up, which is this idea that, you know, when there's something passed by an agency that has a big impact politically or economically, the court can weigh in. Um, That was introduced into this whole, like, story by Scott Pruitt under uh, Trump. Um, Scott Pruitt, before he was EPA director under Trump, uh, was the head of the Republican Attorneys General Association and as such mounted this case. Um, So so like this is, you know, the coal industry's last ditch effort to um, to try to stave off specifically CO2 um, emissions regulations. Um, And, you know, like I said, I was relieved by the ruling. However, I think that like had it not been the weirdest case for them ever to even take up, it would have been worse. And I think we can expect that in some case in the near future. So I'm relieved to hear you say it could have been worse because uh, the, recently these days it's just been worse. Yeah. So that's good. And <laughs> yeah. the Scott Pruitt thing is notable because conflict of interest are very in vogue at the Supreme Court these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. What is the specific impact of this decision on what the Biden administration can do? And how does it affect, if at all, any of the legislative proposals that are sort of circling around Joe Manchin's houseboat right now? Yeah. So, I mean, what it says is that you have to pass legislative proposals if you want to do this. Um, It doesn't necessarily preclude the EPA from using other sections of even the Clean Air Act to get at this. So for example, section 115 says that if there is an international agreement around pollutants, there is, that, um, <laughs> that, you know, that the EPA has the authority to regulate U.S. sources of those emissions. So um, that is something that has not yet been invoked. It could be. Uh, the EPA could also use the Toxic Substances Control Act to get at greenhouse gas emissions. There's a petition for them to do that right now. The EPA is already authorized to regulate particulate matter, which, guess what, is created by the same thing that generates greenhouse gases, the combustion of fossil fuels. So I, I really like um, want to discourage people from feeling like, oh, now we can't do anything about climate change. That is not true. That is not what this ruling says. Um, there is still plenty of authority, both at, at the executive branch, within Congress, and within the regulatory agencies to do a multitude of things about this. And is this and so the the efforts that a lot of states, you know, specifically California, Washington, and Oregon have undertaken, are should also be able to continue to proceed under this. Absolutely, yes. The states are fine. California just passed a fifty billion dollar climate package, and that is moving forward. Um, and you know, I mean, there's been some various analyses that have shown that the market on its own 
has already driven like the the emissions reductions that we would have seen from the clean power plan <laughs> you know so it's hilarious to me that the people that are always squawking about the free market are the ones that are that are fighting regulations that would actually be consistent with where the market is going on this you mean the free market people who also adamantly oppose ending the tax subsidies for highly profitable oil companies those people yes Yes, correct. Those same people. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like, obviously it's not great, but it, um, you know, I saw people being like, they're going to make it illegal to regulate CO2. No, that has not happened. So, you know, um, we live to breathe another day. <laughs> we live to breathe polluted <laughs> air another day on a rapidly dying planet. Yes. Um, yeah. I am. This is a an unusual experience for us in recent weeks to talk about Supreme Court decisions that are not as hard, as bad as they could have possibly been. Um, yeah. So I'm struggling with this element of optimism personally, but which is my, <laughs> my which is sort of my my nature. Optimism anyway. is not my uh, usual mode, so I yeah. too feel okay. out this, of place. That that says a lot yeah. right there. Um, <laughs> but you you indicated earlier that they could strike down other authorities. Are there sort of any sort of breadcrumbs or canaries in the coal mine in any of the opinions here that suggest that that could be in the offing? Yes, I think that um, EPA is going to struggle with particularly anything that has to do with generation of power. So they, they seem to have to be drawing this line between, you know, um, putting a cap on emissions and dictating to the power sector what type of power they can generate. Um, so I, I think that no matter, I honestly think that they should probably just give up trying to use the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act is extremely vague. Like everyone has known that forever, right? It's very, very vague. If we could possibly, you know, reauthorize the Clean Air Act with some specifics around this, that would be amazing, but Joe Manchin. So, you know, (laughs) um, I think that that the the possibility of doing that is probably pretty slim. I actually think that, um, that the Toxic Substances Control Act has much more explicit language that would allow them to, um, to get at this. Um, I think, you know, yeah, I, I honestly, I think that, that, um, that anything they try to do around specifically um, discouraging coal is going to be um, tough to get past these guys. I also think there was this weird section of the ruling where Roberts was like, you know, like basically acted like the EPA was overstepping its bounds because they're not tasked with being in charge of the energy system in the US. So to me, I was like, oh, should DOE be getting more involved than Roberts? Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it seemed to be like a um, a bone of contention for them that like, mm-hmm. oh, well, if you're talking about trying to transition the power system, that that belongs to the DOE and or to, to Congress to authorize some sort of other legislation. Can you say a little more about what using the Toxic Substances Act would mean? Was that would that require mm-hmm. someone in the government declaring CO two to be a toxic substance? Yeah. So there's a petition at the EPA right now. It was filed a couple weeks ago, asking them to um, make a determination on whether greenhouse gases pose a risk to human health or the environment. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that a Biden EPA will come out and say greenhouse gases pose no threat to human health or the environment. Um, so I assume there's going to be some kind of determination made there. They have 60 days to reply. And the Toxic Substances Control Act was just strengthened with bipartisan support in 2016 to explicitly say that they must make decisions about how to reduce the risk of a toxic substance to human health and the environment absent political concerns or financial concerns. That's huge because that is the thing that they referenced over and over again in this ruling is that this would have major economic implications. This would increase the cost of of energy for Americans across the board. Um, There are a lot of political considerations to take into account here. So this would, you know, using Tosca would remove like half of, of Robert's, you know, justification in this ruling. That's fascinating. Um, last question for you. We're getting to the end of this legislative session. This, you know, Democratic majorities are at risk. 
Do you have any insight or hope or optimism that I'm really riding this optimism thing? Any hope or optimism <laughs> that Democrats can get something done on climate legislatively before the end of the year? Oh, um, at the federal level, maybe. I mean, it'd be great. We could we could definitely get this determination from Tosca by the end of the year. They have to reply. You know, um, that could trigger rulemaking which would be good. I also think um, they also, they already um, agreed to tighten the regulations on particulate matter. So this is something that Scott Pruitt stopped under Trump. Um, the Clean Air Advisory Board published their study anyway to say like, we really need to restrict this more. And now the Biden EPA has said, yeah, actually we do. We're going to tighten regulations on particulate matter. So that's actually, you know, I know it's not, um, we don't call it climate, but very much it would have that impact. And that is moving forward. That should be done by the end of the year. So those are a few things. That's good. Like This is an, a shockingly <laughs> optimistic optimism-fueled interview. Okay. La actual last final question now. <laughs> if there are people who do not share your optimism and now my optimism mm -hmm. about this, but are just generally angry at the court and want to do something to help with climate. Do you have any, any place you would direct them to go to give their time or money or uh, energy to? I would say, um, well, there's, there's this group called, uh, let's see, it's the Climate Protection and Restoration Initiative. They're the ones behind this EPA petition on Tosca. I think that like what they're doing is really interesting. And they have the support of um, James Hansen, who's you know the climate scientist who kind of first brought this problem to the masses to begin with. And also Richard Heady, who's the guy that, that did the Carbon Majors report, which is that report that's like 70 companies are responsible for you know, 80% of emissions or whatever it is. I have those numbers wrong, don't quote me, but it's that report. Yeah. Um, so those folks are doing some really, really interesting stuff. Um, I also think like getting involved at the state and local level is huge right now. Um, really, really huge because, you know, I think the one thing that, that um, the Supreme Court seems to not want to touch is, is the state's rights issue, right? So... <laughs> Um, so, so I think getting involved at the state level too. And the other thing is I had someone suggest to me the other day that, um, that climate people look at pressuring the fed more, um, because a SCOTUS will never fuck with the fed B, um, <laughs> there's actually a lot that they can do. They're authorized to do a lot of things that would make it harder for fossil fuel projects to get built and easier for renewables to get built. So I actually think that that's an area that um, that would be good to to see some more pressure applied. Fascinating interview. Thanks for breaking this down for us, Amy. Always great to talk to you and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Okay. Uh, we couldn't end a week like this without one more round of Take Appreciator. Chief Take Officer Elijah Cohn is with us. There was no shortage of Republican reactions from Tuesday's congressional hearing. And Elijah's going to hit us with some of the favorites. Yes, guys. Welcome back to the Take Appreciator's Simp Edition. <laughs> Today's takes are all defending Donald Trump after, after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony in front of the January 6th committee on Tuesday. So it's safe to say that they're all terrible. Instead, we'll be grading our contestants on how big of simps for Trump they are on a scale of one to four simps. Instead of earning a full playbook, we'll be awarding the biggest simps, the full Rudy. John and Dan, <laughs> what is a simp? You tell, you tell me, CTO. Uh, the G-rated version is it's a person who is desperate for affection from someone who is not going to give it to them. What's the, what's, what's, this isn't a G-rated show. What's the other version? <laughs> uh, it's extremely misogynistic, so we're going to, we'll punt on that one. 
Cool. Let's punt on that. Let's punt on that. I'm 41, so I don't know all these things. Yeah, listen to offline. Uh, okay, let's As let's always, do John it. and Dan have not heard these takes, so let's go ahead and dive in with a clip from a real grade A asshole, Kyle, whenever you're ready. She's an extremely junior low-level aide. I don't think I ever had a conversation with her that I can at least recall of, of, any, of any substance or death. But, but to Molly's point, this is a Rorschach test for your sanity. Yeah. If you heard this story and you thought, man, I believe every word of this, I'm going to go online and say something about it energetically, something is wrong with you. Guys, any guesses? Ugh. What an annoying voice, and I can't place it. <sighs> Who could that be? It sounds a little like Matt Gates, but not really. I don't think it's Matt Gates. Want a hint? Yeah, yeah. A hint would be great. Former Trump admin official. Admin official. Or, or oh, staffer. I get my terms official. mixed up, but he was in the Trump admin. He's a real uh, real creep. I mean, Stephen Miller? Yes, it's Stephen Miller. <laughs> wow. Oh. The the speechwriter in question that we had been talking about earlier that was trying to fight off the edits from the White House counsel's office that was trying to decrime the speech. I mean, it's very hard for Stephen Miller to balance in a limited word speech cri- all the crimes and all the racism. So that I imagine that was quite challenging for him. Yeah. I mean, I guess he wasn't, wasn't having a lot of conversations with her from his mom's basement. <laughs> would you, how would you guys like to grade him on the simp meter here? I mean, he is a legendary... I mean... I think his life is definitely a full Rudy, but that quote specifically, I would say, is a, 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 a two and a half, a three. I'm going to go one and a half. It's, he barely, he was mailing it in there. Yeah, yeah, he could have done worse. Yeah, the old didn't really know her defense. <laughs> All right. Didn't know the chief of staff's assistant is not a credible argument for yeah, the Yeah, when you're the chief speechwriter of the White House. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. Okay. Well, this next one is a tweet. I think it's indicative of a lot of responses, kind of like the party line response. Much of it is in all caps. I'll try to shout those parts. (laughs) Thank you. The witch hunt committee is a joke. The liberal media will do anything to push this never Trump snooze fest, but nobody in real America cares. Where are the hearings on inflation, open borders, and baby formula? This whole thing is meant to distract from Biden's failures who said it? Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not right. It's, I mean, it sounds like it's like too many coherent words for a Chuck Grassley t- tweet, but it's that kind of vibe. Um, it seems maybe it's an idiot from the house, like a Jim Jordan. Is that a Jim Jordan tweet? It is not. It's in that vein, though. And you guys had a previous relationship with this person. Oh, it's a, oh, of course. <laughs> Yeah, Ronnie Jackson. Speaking of, yes. Speaking of, speaking of people with formerly sterling reputations, <laughs> it would have been really funny, <laughs> like the Secret Service. <laughs> yes. It would have been really funny if, when Elijah said you have a previous relationship with her, John just piped up and said Marjorie Taylor Green. We were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ronnie. Anywho. good job, Ronnie. I mean, honestly, not very, not very creative from Ronnie either. Though I have, I have come to not expect a lot of interesting creative responses from ronnie he's sort of like a magabot like you could he just sort of like you could not tell the difference between an ai magabot and ronnie's ronnie's comments and i don't even know if he writes them so it's yeah i'm gonna yeah. give it a two 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 for me what do you guys think of that republican line generally of like this is a distraction from the real issues that kind of thing that's their best argument yeah it it gets a harder to make when you're talking about uh the uh their 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 front runner for 2024 saying that he wanted to go join a violent mob uh, to attack the Capitol. That's a harder, harder thing to, it's like, uh, what do we care about more? The fact that the guy who wants to be president in a couple years uh, led a violent assault on the Capitol or uh, inflation? <laughs> I don't think we want to get the answer to that. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Dan does want the answer. <laughs> All right, well, moving on. This one's a little long. It's a clip again. We can maybe cut it down and post if we want, but I think it's an important part of the response to Cassidy Hutchinson. So Kyle, whenever you're ready. And if you put up this Secret Service agent who says, this girl's lying, I never said that. He's got 20 years in the Secret Service. Guy's got a ton of integrity. She's fresh out of college. Who do you believe? He has a lot to lose by lying. She has everything to gain by lying. 
Look at her. She's the new it girl, right? She's going to get a job offer at CNN. She's going to be a contributor. She'll probably get a book deal. And she'll waltz around at every party in Washington, go to Cafe Milano, never have to pay for another drink. So I'm suspicious of her. Look, I, I will tell you that the, uh, the Cafe Milano crack really got me. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> we do... We do have a bipartisan hatred for Cafe Milano here <laughs> with with Jesse Waters and the crew on Fox. That's who it was. That's right? correct. Yes, Jesse Waters. Yeah, unfortunately, you can't you can't disguise that voice. You can't disguise that. Yeah, no, she has a lot to gain. Death threats, intimidation, harassment, uh, never getting a job in Republican politics again. She has plenty of gain. Also, she testified under oath and Tony, uh, so far, Tony Arnato has testified via anonymous sources to reporters. So that's what we got going on. I mean, also just the premise that you gain integrity as you age is just really stupid. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> yeah, obviously he's more honest. He's older. Yeah, right. Yeah. No. I mean, look, I, I think it's, I, I'd bump it up to a three. It's a, he's, he gave it a little more of a college try than the last two. I think I'm going to give it a three and a half just for that special Fox News dose of misogyny in the end there. Yeah. And the and also, again, making fun of Cafe Milano. So that's it's, why it's not you know, a four, to, is you deduct I do a half have to a align, I do have to align myself with that. Great. Yeah. Jesse Waters, man. Tough to hear. What a douche. The amount of people <laughs> who are listening to this who were just like, why do these guys hate a random Italian restaurant so much? It's just going to be. It is, it's the epitome of everything that's wrong with Washington, D.C. It's Cafe Milano. You're going to get an email about this. I know it. I don't know who it's from, but you're going to get one. Who? Yeah. Who? Who? The, the, the defenders of Cafe Milano? Oh, no. I'm not going to be able to go there when I visit D.C. What's going to happen? <laughs> I'm going to have to fucking eat some fucking spaghetti somewhere else. It's not The food's not that good. <laughs> Yeah, someone someone made the meme of like one really strong arm giving the handshake to the other really strong arm, and it's you know John and Dan on one, Jesse Waters on the other, and hating Cafe Milano. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to the next one, which I think is just really like definitional simp behavior. So as we discussed, part of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was that. At one point during the insurrection, Trump got so upset that he threw his lunch across the room, leaving ketchup smeared on the White House cafeteria wall that led to one potential simp here saying the following, quote, he threw a plate in the lunchroom. I don't know how much that matters. He was very upset about the election. Guys, I don't want to guess who that was. I don't know. I can't even. I, who? Yeah, just tell Wait, us. You got anything? It's Brian Kilmeade. <laughs> I mean, and you know what, Brian Kilmeade, that gets a fucking one. There was no, you, that you're trying to you're trying to focus on the plate. You're, you think that the plate against the wall is how you're going to try to distract from the rest of the bullshit? Come on. Yeah, I mean, the way the way to do it is to focus on the steering wheel, right? That's the way right, to do exactly. it. Exactly. You can't even that's pick the better. right marginalia. That's at least more effective simp behavior. The, don't don't go with the ketchup on the wall. No one no, no one thought that was important. I just it was love funny the justification though. that he was mad. He was mad. So he was what? mad. Yeah. Well, you you throw fucking ketchup at the wall too. Um, the other reason we put that in there is because Tommy Vitor, you guys know him. We all know him. <laughs> he asked me specifically to read this quote from Fox News from the Obama years. "Quote: Plain old ketchup didn't cut it for the president. He ordered Dijon mustard. I hope you enjoyed your fancy burger, Mister <laughs> President." Tommy holds the most specific grudges, and I really appreciate that. I mean, Mustard Gate was a great, great moment in American history that sort of foretold everything that was to come. It's very true. It's very true. When was that? Was that was that oh nine? Was that yeah? We were in the White House, I think. Was it oh nine? And he used what year? But do you want to guess what pundit? Oh, that started the um, Peter Baker. Oh. He's still Who on the it? network. Oh, oh, oh. Is it uh, which network? Which network? Fox News. He's in primetime. Oh, is it Tucker? No. Sean Hannity. It's Sean Hannity. Hannity. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Ah, should have gone with that. I mean, this was, it wasn't just it was mustard. It was like Grey Poupon, which was the, uh, why people were so yeah. upset about it. It is some beautiful poetry there of going from ketchup to ketchup, condiment to condiment here. You know what it is? That's very nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, Thank you, Tommy Vitor, for, for that grudge. <laughs> 
Tommy, who was also very excited that we attacked Cafe Milano because um, he he brought up that Steve Bannon had also recently attacked <laughs> Cafe Milano. So there's the there's the meme right there. There's the Tommy V towards Steve Bannon anti Cafe Milano. We'll get on it. All right, last one. Glad I could talk you guys up to five instead of three today. Uh, this is a series of posts on social media. <clears throat> Quote. Cassidy Hutchinson's body language is that of a total bullshit artist. Fantasyland. Another post. There's no cross-examination of this so-called witness. This is a kangaroo court. Another post simply reads, a total phony. Another post reads, I never said Mike Pence deserves it, parentheses, to be hung. Another (laughs) Another made up statement by a third rate social climber. Who's simping, guys? (laughs) <laughs> the, the 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 simper in chief <laughs> because those sound like uh those sound like red check-marked truths if i ever heard them from donald j trump himself that is i can't correct. believe you didn't i can't believe you didn't include the wacky handwriting he made fun of her wacky handwriting he did make fun, oh i did include i just skipped over that line yes I mean, obviously, Donald Trump is known for his penmanship. For anyone who remembers who he when he defaced the weather map with the sharpie, <laughs> or has seen. The- I, oh, I think he, I think he actually said that it was the handwriting of a wacko. I think it was a little yes. a little tougher than that. <laughs> but also, as we know, there is a direct relationship between trust and penmanship, which is why the most trusted profession in America is calligraphers. <laughs> it's like, it's so insane. Honestly, like. Honestly, on the Sim scale, not the greatest effort from Donald Trump. I mean, like, he's I lost think, his fastball. Uh, he he has yeah, absolutely lost his fastball on this stuff. He's just not the same on truth. His truths aren't the same. I his tweets. fucking love Truth Social. I love everything about it. I love that. <laughs> they, Let's just clip this. That Let's they call it a truth, <laughs> a retruth. I love that they took blue check mark and made it a red check mark. It is like the most. I know. McDonald's McDowell's thing in history. It's so good. It is the big mick of social media sites. I love it. No notes. No notes on Truth Social. Just just indictment. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Apparently with the media company. Um, Chief Take Officer Elijah Cohn, thank you as always. Amy Westervelt from Hot Take. Thanks for joining. Everyone go subscribe to Hot Take um, and, and listen to some of the best, the best, most expert climate analysis there is. Everyone else, have a fantastic fourth holiday and we will uh, we'll see y'all next week. Bye everyone. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>